0: Hello everyone, today we're going to explore the strange history of Heavenly Rebellion. This is Season 2 of Breakfast with Gilgamesh. Religions are living entities. They exist not simply as precepts to be obeyed as written, but as ever-evolving ideas shaped by the societies who believed in and interrogated them. What is considered holy canon, and what is considered false or apocryphal, is the purview of a given religion's earthly authority. But the stories and ideas that are no longer considered holy writ by the majority of a given religion's believers were nonetheless at one time or another believed in by the people of that faith. Today, I want to focus on how the perceptions of certain religious entities change over time. Specifically, the concept of the rebel angel. The most famous rebellious angel is probably Lucifer, the angel of the morning star, also called Satan. In popular storytelling traditions, Satan was cast out of heaven for convincing his fellow angels to live free from the authority of the one true God. From here, Satan becomes a figure of temptation to mortal men. Satan's motivations in these stories tend to be to tempt his victims away from God with the promise of earthly power. No work of literature better captures this dynamic than the greatest of the English epic poems, Paradise Lost, by John Milton. Milton wrote his opus in the late 1660s, and the epic became so wildly popular that many of the very basic concepts of Satan to this day spring from his writing. Some of my favorite writing about Milton comes from the writer, host, and Toronto icon Anthony Oliveira, who was kind enough to join me for today's episode. Anthony is the host of The Devil's Party, a podcast in which he explores Milton's seminal work. He is the winner of the Glad Media Award for Outstanding Comic Book for his work on Empire Hulkling for Marvel Comics. And closest to my own heart, Anthony is the host of the Dumpster Raccoon programming series at the Review Cinema here in Toronto. His prodigious body of work can be read at AnthonyOliveira.com You know, I I couldn't think of anyone better to talk about Milton than you, so...
1: (laughs) There's many who could, but they're ancient mummies at this point. Yeah,
0: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um,
1: it is my very great pleasure.
0: Can you start by telling me a little bit about Milton uh, before he came to write Paradise Lost?
1: Oh, sure. Um, John Milton is a fun little pugnacious individual. <laughs> um Milton was born right at the beginning of the 17th century, I think 1608, 1606, 1608. I think 1608. Um in Bread Street in London, um he grew up very urbane. Uh his father was a wealthy scrivener and composer. Um the family he had a very London upbringing. Um one of his biographers Anna Beer said that he was uh, born in the London of Shakespeare and died in the London of Pepys, uh, which gives you kind of the goalposts of the life that he lived, uh, basically at a moment when London and England itself were was uh, modernizing in, in the way we usually think of it. Um, the London of Pepys, although the fashion is quite different, resembles quite a bit our own, not that different from modern London, uh, a constitutional monarchy. Um, An increasingly secularizing age it's not a period of english literature we're good about theorizing i've been trying to make fashionable the idea of an english baroque again um but anyway that's the that's the milieu uh, milton was born into and he took to the age quite robustly um as i said he was uh, not above the occasional fight and it made him quite a political figure um he eventually rose to prominence uh, as a servant of Cromwell's regime during the, what will we call it, the revolution, the interregnum, uh, the English Civil War. He was one of the main advocates for, for example, he was basically the chief propagandist for the execution of Charles uh, the King once he was delivered into uh, the rebels' powers. Um, he then served as secretary of foreign tongues for Oliver Cromwell, Um And when the restoration occurred and Charles II was back on the throne, Milton had basically spent his eyesight, spent his health, and spent every dime of his political uh, fortunes um, to serve a regime that had now completely collapsed. And he had become very much persona non grata. In fact, really the only reason John Milton was not executed by Charles II's restoration regime is that he had become so pitiable a figure— Um, that killing him would have been too controversial (laughs) and not a wise political move. Um, And it is into this kind of complete personal, financial, spiritual, political depletion that he begins composing really the great work of poetic uh, production of his life, which is the epic poem Paradise Lost, uh, which he essentially dictated to those around him. It was quite fashionable to imagine his poor benighted daughters listening to him screaming this poem. <laughs> uh, that is increasingly a position we're not sure about. Uh, he seems to have had several amanuensises, but um, he really was, had he never written Paradise Lost, he would be remembered chiefly as a political figure and for his uh, very fascinating tracts about how everyone should be able to get divorced because he had a very unhappy marriage and made sure it was everyone's business.
0: <laughs> And, uh, when, when did you read Paradise Lost and what did it mean to you? uh, Oh,
1: I have a very vivid memory. When I was 17, uh, I went to an all boys Catholic school. I grew up before that in a very Christian, very Catholic household. Um, and I was always obsessed with what I guess I'm now comfortable calling Christian mythology. (laughs) Um, and the, uh, Spiritual mechanics of how the world worked. And uh it was not long. The first time I ever heard about Paradise Lost was watching a TV show we had in Canada um called uh Prisoners of Gravity, which was a sci-fi um news program. Um, and they were interviewing um oh, what's his name? Yes, it was a hundred percent Ray Bradbury. Um talking about influences on his career. And he was talking about this moment in Paradise Lost when Satan says, um, all right, well, we're defeated, but we are not humbled. We are not completely decimated. We will rise. And and Bradbury was obsessed with the nobility of that. Um, so I immediately picked up a paperback edition of Paradise Lost and was reading it everywhere I went and understanding none of it. And I remember the boy I had a crush on Ask me what it was that I was reading at a ba- a basketball game because I was the kind of kid who brought a book to a basketball game, um, and that moment has actually become kind of the seed of my own uh, fictional universe. A book called Apocrypha, which is coming out someday, 2024 maybe. Um, but Paradise Lost has been with me almost as long as I've been an adult. It's a text that has obsessed me my entire life.
0: What? It, it, has it changed its meaning from you as that kid at that basketball game to now being sort of this scholar and sort of a local Toronto celebrity in a lot of senses? <laughs>
1: um, yes. I think that I think I was meeting Paradise Lost on my terms when I was a kid. And I think that when you uh, spend as long with a text like Paradise Lost, you quickly learn that Milton insists that you meet him where he is. Um, It is a very difficult text. It is self-consciously difficult. It's why I began the project of The Devil's Party, which is a podcast meant to explain this poem to readers who struggle with it. Um, Because it doesn't even just make, for example, abstruse references. It makes them as difficult to follow as it can. So it will never call a character Hercules if it can call him the son of Alcibiades or something, right? Like, that's the kind of person Milton was. He was, as I said, very learned and wanted you to know it. (laughs) Um, He was not a Shakespeare in that he was not writing for the popular stage. He was writing for the fit though few who could understand what it was he was saying. Mm -hmm. Um, And as a consequence, uh, the willingness of the text to be peculiar and to be specific and difficult Um, is part of the pleasure of it. Um, He was a man who did not shy away from being difficult in person or textually. And I think that's one of the pleasures actually of the text.
0: Right. Um, And so a great deal of your writing centers around queer identity within religious iconography. And there's been a lot of um, sort of queer semiotics and queer language built around the Milton satan. Um I've noticed your pati- your particular reverence um in the trend of queer people translating their religious trauma into art. Can you tell mm. me a little can you tell me a little bit about that phenomena and uh, Milton's work within that movement?
1: Yeah, uh, ooh there's a lot of ways to go there. Um Paradise Lost is a one of the reasons I wanted to do my podcast in the first place is because Paradise Lost is an incredibly queer text. But because it is as difficult as I just indicated it is, um, it has a tendency to attract a certain kind of very conservative um, reading in that you often have to master several languages and several disciplines before you can even consider be considered at a scholarly level to be properly reading it. Um, and as a consequence, it tends to move more slowly than, for example, uh, a Shakespeare um shakespearean queer readings right shakespearean queer readings are everywhere um, miltonic ones are more difficult to access so i did want to make them more easy to see um the text itself is quite queer uh it is explicit and it is interesting to me how often its queerness is particularly oriented towards gender play um milton as a poet is very interested in the slippages of gender. Um, The text is explicit, for example, that the angels can both sexes assume or neither, Um, and that Uh, There is a moment in the text, for example, when uh, Adam, that is our first father, Adam, uh, the first human, asks Raphael about angel sex. And Raphael blushes because it is it sounds like an all boy orgy of mutual (laughs) interpenetration where their bodies are completely malleable. Uh, And plasticated and can be merged in whatever combination those angels like Um, the angels are fascinated by Eve as a figure, because the idea of the feminine is kind of a fascinating new thing in the world with some interesting asterisks, for example, the figure of sin. It is unusual in Paradise Lost that one of the punishments Satan seems to receive against a kind of anti-sex position we're all quite used to with Christianity is that Satan is in some ways castrated by the fall. Um, His ability to enjoy sex seems to have been diminished. He's turned into this kind of onanistic... Uh, peeping Tom in the Garden of Eden when he sees Adam and Eve. But he still has an angel that he is known to have loved, the the figure who is now called Beelzebub, um, who he addresses in quite romantic terms in his first speech in the text. Um, It is a universe that seems interested in and untroubled by uh, gender uh, configurations that are more beyond the usual man and woman he created them, right? The, the the novelty of man and woman he created them is kind of the point in Paradise Lost. And this is reflected, too, in Milton's life. He is um, a figure whose own gender is interesting to me. He grew very long, very beautiful hair in a period where a man sporting such hair was actually quite controversial. Um, Many people have heard that the English Civil War was fought between the Cavaliers and the Roundheads. Milton was on the team of the Roundheads. They are called that because they have shortly cropped masculine hair. And yet Milton sported this beautiful long mane. In, high, in um, university, his nickname was actually the Lady of Christchurch because he was the most fe- – of course, it was an all-male university, and he was by far the most feminine figure at it. Um he seems to, the major relationship of his life. He was married three times, uh, as I mentioned, sometimes quite acrimoniously. But the figure to whom he writes the most beautiful love poetry of his life is his handsome uh, young Italian friend, Charles Diodati, who dies quite young. Um, all of this is kind of part of the rich queer booyah base that is Paradise Lost and which I am interested in. Um, examining and drawing from in my own sort of processing of, as you mentioned, queer religious trauma. Mm -hmm. I think that, um, I think that the ruins of my Christianity remain the ruins that I am squatting in as I move through life, (laughs) whether or not any of it has been incorporated into my being. It is the language by which I articulate the world, it is, in fact, perhaps the great fall into which I, like Satan, have come, and now I am in the ruins of this life that I did not get to have, uh, but it remains the only way I can articulate self to self. Um, I think that's that's how I envision my own queer project, I guess. Right,
0: that's beautiful. Um, so, th- so despite the sort of difficulty of Paradise Lost and the esoteric nature of... Um, of its of its writing and and the way that Milton uh, uh, put it together and 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 expresses it, um, it's a very popular text in sort of a grander sense. Mm. It's referenced a lot. It's uh, both in pop culture and in other literary circles. Um, and there are a lot of pieces of popular fiction that draw from Paradise Lost, or at least Milton's depiction of Satan, across yes. mediums and genres what is it about Milton Satan specifically that you think compels so many people to tell those stories about Lucifer, despite how esoteric the actual text is?
1: Yeah. I um, the quote I always think of and actually from which my podcast derives its name is uh, when William Blake read paradise lost and William Blake is one of the great readers of paradise lost. The one of the, the first adapters of it into another art form is his, is images of the text are iconic they remain sort of definitive for the text but when he read it uh, william blake said milton is of the devil's party and does not know it um milton i talked about how milton sort of was born into the moment the modernity was articulating itself he in some ways was the figure that most articulated modernity into existence he uh his poetry obsessed the Romantic Age. It is, in many ways, his voice that William Wordsworth is kind of mimicking when he writes his own poetry. Um, The power of his uh, blank verse in the text becomes the sound, the rhythm by which the Romantics try to articulate themselves, and Satan, as kind of the proto-Byronic hero, is a version of that. It is hard. It is the great difficulty in reading Paradise Lost Um, that many readers encounter that Satan is by far its most compelling figure. You have to deal with the fact that when you read, as Bradbury did, when you read Paradise Lost, it is hard not to see Satan as its protagonist. It is hard not to see Satan as, in fact, the person who is right, that God is a tyrant in the text and his regime must be rebelled against. Um, And when you read Milton's biography on top of that, himself one of the arch-rebels of his age, it is hard not to think that he is at least at various moments siding with that position. Now that being said, many readers of paradise law subsequently have said that is the point of paradise Lost—that that it is a text that seduces us the same way Satan does and tricks us into replicating the fall in which Adam and Eve fall into. And we are ourselves seduced by Satan in it. Um, that's a reading that I am interested in, but ultimately think is not quite where I go with it. But um, you can see how, at the moment when England and basically all of Europe and beyond into America, into um, both of the Americas, actually up to and including I, my my family is Portuguese, like the the colonial wars as as. Uh, the Portuguese empire started to fall apart. Uh, the age which Milton helped bring into being was an age of rebellion, was an age that turned against the great Baroque kings of its moment and was trying to find a way to articulate a way to reject absolutism and um, theological monarchies, right? As I said, Milton um, is, even though he his regime, the the Cromwellians are eventually defeated and the king is restored, Um, not that long afterwards, we do get William and Mary put on the throne and a constitutional monarchy is articulated, right? Like um, over and against James II's attempt to turn the clock back and produce another kind of absolutist moment. Um, The French are about to rebel. America is about to rebel. And Milton's voice does become, in many ways, the rallying cry for those rebellions. I think that is the enduring appeal of paradise lost it teaches us how to reject the mechanisms of power that are being articulated for us
0: is there is there like a specific depiction of satan in pop culture uh that is so that is clearly milton milton satan that you resonate with or that you love to sort of point to
1: um oh that is interesting is there some is there a moment right now
0: as a fan of your uh, your dumpster raccoon series, you're uh, you're very very good at sort of pulling meaning from what other people may consider um, uh, uh, you know lesser art, um, and lesser art is always very brazen in borrowing from higher art. So. Um, yeah, I've always wondered if you had a if you specifically had a favorite depiction of Satan in pop oh, culture. Cuz I know it's not going to be the ones everyone says. I know it's not going to be Gaiman's depiction <laughs> in Sandman or anything like that obvious.
1: Yeah, I mean, I do like them. I particularly like the Mike Carey Satan. That is mm-hmm. which is obviously a a a version of the Gaiman Satan. Um I I like a campy Satan too because there is something campy about Milton's Satan, <laughs> like David Warner in *Time Bandits*, is one of my favorite Satans. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that one's great. Um, uh, Tim Curry and Legend, like yeah. these, I love a handsome Satan, but I love that the uh, Satan I think about a lot because it does very specifically reference the kind of Jacobean moment. Is the one you almost glimpse in *The Witch*. The the shadowy figure, Mm. the the sort of embodiment of Black Philip that we see at the end of the text when she signs his book. Mm -hmm. Um there's a lot there that comes out of Paradise Lost, like his handsomeness, but also his like Spanishness.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The fancy
1: boots, the fancy clothes. Um the idea that the great temptation he offers her is butter. Like there's something. (laughs) There is something about the purity of that that I think resonates. I think Milton would recognize that Satan in particular. Um, I don't know. I would love to make a top 10 list. That would be fun.
0: <laughs> you should. I think that'd be great. <laughs> I mean, there's Satan is often employed to represent um uh, like, like temptation. So you mentioned uh, in, in the witch mm. uh, he offers her butter because to that character, that's that's extravagance that's the most earthly pleasure she can think of in that moment so yeah so that's how it comes uh i mean i guess
1: now that i'm thinking about it one of my favorite recent ones is in lil Nas's call me by your name Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. which steals i don't know how much lil Nas was thinking about paradise lost but the mechanics there are identical even though it opens it's hard to tell what Lil Nas is playing in that video because it opens with the garden and then the condemnation Mm -hmm. in heaven and then the fall to hell like it is but it is replicating the mechanism that Satan performs in Paradise Lost which is well I've been damned better to reign in hell than serve in heaven right
0: yeah
1: and he sort of bottoms from the top he seduces (laughs) he seduces Satan in that and then becomes king of hell himself right yeah um That actually, I I sometimes fantasize about what it would be like to show texts from now to historical figures that I would think those texts are derived from. Like, I would love to show Milton that video and be like, what do you think? Because I think he would like it. Um, (laughs) Really? Yeah. Yeah. Also, the text, I think, is most derivative of Milton's um, cosmology and that I reference a lot on the podcast, is Tolkien's. Mm -hmm. Tolkien is a very careful reader of Paradise Lost, uh, and a lot of his mechanics in The Lord of the Rings comes from the text. So, for example, I was talking about how one of the unusual things that milton does as he was very pro-sex um and goes out of his way in paradise lost to articulate that it is a pro-sex text that adam and eve do have sex before the fall that sex is good sex is natural not everyone does it but everybody should right like the the george michael position is uh milton's position um uh tolkien understands that quite well and when he thinks about Evil, he thinks about evil as a similar barrenness that it is the banality of evil in in Lord of the Rings. That, um, Satan goes through in Paradise Lost a similar arc that Sauron goes through in Lord of the Rings, where evil is turning him more and more into a diffusion, into something that is aerosol for -hmm. whom it is hard to be beautiful, for whom it is eventually hard to even have a body at all. Um, that is very Miltonic. The idea that hell is something you carry with you and will mark your body uh, and your mind in ways that are much worse than a physical space of fire. Uh, you will become sort of uh, like the wraiths. The, Tolkien really knows his English, obviously. A ring wraith is a great phrase because wraith comes from the same root as the word wreath. Um, it is something around which something turns a hollowness. The wraiths are hollow beings like the ring. Um, something that is hard on the outside and empty on the inside. And that's what Sauron becomes too. Um, bigger and bigger and less and less is what evil does to you. And that is maybe actually uh, Morgoth and Sauron are kind of the two great children of Milton's Satan, I think.
0: Hmm. I love the Little Nas X comparison because you're right. <laughs> it's hard to tell you know, I, I don't know if Little nassex has has uh, has read Milton, and 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 who knows? But um, the but, the sort of semiotic language of that narrative is so powerful. That yeah. And as he expresses it as just this kid who struggled with this aspect of himself and is now fully embracing it, the first images that come to mind are incredibly Miltonian, right? Is it, it, yes, it goes right exactly. there whether or not he read the book because he doesn't have to explicitly reference Milton for everyone to know exactly what he's talking about.
1: Because the culture has been mulching Milton for 400 years, right? Like it is now, it is now in the soil. Like it doesn't matter if you, you don't have to recite Milton uh, Satan's first speech from book one of Paradise Lost to know it by heart now, right? Like uh, that is baked into our DNA. We know what it is to face a tyrant and say, I will lose, but I will die facing you. Um, because we watch the age over and over again, articulate that back to us, um, uh, up to like, you know, awful fascist things like 300, right? There is an element of like, there isn't a way that our culture for better or worse is dealing with Satan's children. Um, and, and it doesn't really matter what Milton would think of that because as Blake said, uh, he doesn't know how much he's on satan's team right mm-hmm. uh neither do we <laughs> so yeah. that's the fun of a text like this
0: right of course yeah that's that's brilliant i mean yeah like to me the first thing i think of with paradise lost is like the wrath of khan
1: yes yes right? I quite mean, so
0: they, they put it in the movie there's a shot where he's got moby dick and paradise lost on his bookshelf in his own personal hell that he's been stewing in um, and that reading of 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 Khan as as satan is is wildly different than most depictions to me because um there there's there isn't really a lot of sympathy for Khan in that film. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's still so compelling, both because Ricardo Montevan is playing him, <laughs> uh, but also because uh you are in at least in in the wrath of Khan, you are supposed to side with Kirk, who is supposed to be in one way or another God. he's who cast cast him down there and the whole movie plays as a, uh, to a reference of a of a story I I didn't see space seed before I saw Wrath of Khan. I don't think most people these days who see Wrath of Khan um uh, they see Space Seed after, right? And they understand mm-hmm. the reference there um and where it came from, but it's still so compelling even without that root text and 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 you can still sort of cling to Khan as a as a satanic figure. In, in yeah, the
1: I I mean Moby Dick is also one of the great children of paradise lost right yeah. like uh similarly Ahab Ahab is a is a, a Miltonic Satan right like mm-hmm. grandly compelling lightning scarred by the, the the fallen angels are disfigured by the fall that's one of the consequences um again a thing that Tolkien picks up but uh it is hard to read Moby Dick. Like, no one sides with Ahab, but he is one of the grand romantic figures from it, right? Like, mm-hmm. from hell's heart, I stab at thee. Like, what if you what if you were willing to destroy even yourself uh, to get revenge on a thing that um, is the great sublime and in many ways can never be harmed, right? <laughs> like, yeah. that... And Khan is similar. Like, the Federation... There's very little in Gene Roddenberry that offers... At least in its early stages, much of a critique of the Federation, but it is hard not to see their utopianism and their insidious imperialism um, as something that is immune to figures who could strike back at it. Right? Uh, I, I I think the the later versions of the series are quite good at this. Right? Like there is a way that Cisco is a version of this. There's a way that. Um, characters like Seven of Nine, these sort of fallen figures who have emerged from horror and now stand outside the system and can point out its terrible contradictions and insidious logics um, are quite compelling to us. It's a, there's a reason Seven of Nine is one of the most iconic figures from um, the Star Trek universe, right? We we love a fallen angel. <laughs> There is a moment in Paradise Lost where we see the newly created Earth from Satan's perspective as he enters our universe and it dangles from heaven like a, from a golden chain, um, entirely dependent upon heaven as this grand imperial project uh, and subject to its tyrannical will, right? Like mm-hmm. there is no logic to, um, importantly, there is no logic to the interdiction from the forbidden fruit, you cannot reason your way to why that fruit is forbidden. It is simply so, um,
0: yeah, absolutely. and that is
1: the the rock against which Eve's reason crashes. Right, there cannot be if he has said this un. He if he, he has said this with no cause, he has said so unjustly. Therefore, he cannot be a just God. Um, therefore, this is a riddle. Therefore, this is a trick. And what he secretly wants is for me to eat this after all. Um, Yep. if she's right or not is what you have to decide <laughs>
0: yeah yeah that's right that's exactly it i mean even with um even even with uh with uh with what's what's coming next after after our talk here which is uh the story of uh of of the apocryphal fallen angels mm. the Book of enoch um there's there's a lot of that and and that i mean hell the 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 enoch the enoch books were so important to the founding christians to christ and his followers they were incredibly popular um yeah
1: in a way that has been occluded right like we we lost those texts for such a long time and yet having found them again it's like oh this makes sense for a lot of the theology that we didn't understand where did that come from at the turn of the you know at first ce like where did all these i did the christian semantics like oh no that's an important part of jewish thinking at that moment um milton was a careful hebraist he he read hebrew in, a, in an age when most english gentiles did not um and the question of judaism in 17th century england is quite interesting because cromwell's regime as monstrous as it was one of the things it did was uh formally welcomed jewish populations back into england mm-hmm. um it is hard not to see perhaps milton's hand on the tiller there uh, he was interested in these texts and interested in um he was interested in being uh heterodox if not openly heretical throughout his life he did not particularly care about whether or not he was conforming to the theologies of men he didn't really respect in the anglican church he was um we're pretty sure as encountering the text and certainly if you believe *De Doctrina christiana was written by milton he certainly did not believe for example in the trinity he seems to have been something of an arian the son is uh somehow a derivation of the father a thing created by the father um that is somehow in a special relationship with the father but That relationship is what Satan objects to. It is the thing he will not subject himself to. Um, You have to decide in the text how right you think that is. This is an interesting problem there too, but it comes out of his great respect for the insistence on God being one, um, that he thinks Christianity has in some ways diminished through this concept of a triune God. Um, Yeah, it's... uh, the Book of Enoch is such an, well, the books of Enoch are such an exciting uh, find for us. They help us articulate quite a lot, not just about Milton, but about uh, Christianity itself.
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the contrasts, and obviously, like you said, like because the, uh, the, the, the Cave of Qumran came a lot later and we didn't rediscover these connections, but there's such an interesting contrast to me. Uh, when I read the Book of Enoch of uh, the the fallen angels in the Book of Enoch begging God for mercy, which you mm. cannot imagine Mil- Milton Satan ever doing, because of that, <laughs> Milton sort of Satan cannot
1: behavior. imagine Milton Satan ever doing it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um,
0: they 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 beg they beg uh, God to spare the Nephilim, um, and God can't do that because the mm. Nephilim are both heroes and monsters. They are all the extremes of mortal existence and uh and 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 they have to be gotten rid of for the sake of i guess temperance um sure. you know, whatever reading you want to take on that um and and satan seems very much against this this sort of internal logic of 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 temperance that that we have to sub, sub, submit ourselves to pure logic because like you said the game is illogical from the mm. start Right? All of it doesn't matter and 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 it's and it's it's a riddle, it's a trick, all, all that stuff. Um yeah. yeah.
1: In so- Paradise Lost, when he is one of the pleasures of Paradise Lost is Milton writing a character who is omniscient. Um, one of the poetic pleasures of Paradise Lost is that whenever God talks, he keeps collapsing the verb
0: tenses <laughs> mm.
1: <laughs> because he simultaneously sees everything at once. So uh he will he says that. Um, he watches Satan proceeding towards our reality. And he says uh, he shall try to pervert and shall pervert. Uh, He knows that Satan will succeed and he knows that man must die for that. And he says explicitly die, uh, die, he must, or what is it? Um, He must die or justice must die, right? There is a way that God's hands are tied by his compulsion to justice somehow, um, and for which he offers this kind of strange paradox of the sacrifice of the sun, um, which somehow will redeem mankind. And it's interesting to try to piece together how that works, both in general Christology, but particularly in Paradise Lost. Um, But yes, the question of mercy in the text is an interesting one. It's one that Satan weighs himself in Book 4 of Paradise Lost when he Mm -hmm. sees the sun. He sees how beautiful it is and how disgusting it is because it's so beautiful that it hurts him. Um, and he wonders if God, if he asked, he knows if he asked God for mercy, he would get it, but he cannot bring himself to ask, which of course God knows, which is why no angel can ever be redeemed because God already knows if they could be and they never will ask. Um, <laughs> so it is one of the fun moments of Milton's age is like wrestling with this Calvinist, Sasanian problem of like, yeah are we already damned and is it because god already knows like to what extent does our free will even operate at all within a time that a being can observe um it's interesting to me how much i've always wondered how much of um quantum mechanics is actually just a secularized version of christian mechanics (laughs) because the observer so many of these things we talk about now sound a lot like christian theology wearing its business suit to me (laughs) Yeah, it's it is one of the strange horrors of Paradise Lost is when Satan realizes that every bit of evil he does will be turned to good. That is the the terrible fate he is forced to endure that um he can just keep trying to frustrate a system that is designed to turn against him. It is like it is like the whole universe is cursed against him. Um the question of whether or not anything new can ever happen in paradise lost is one of the exciting ones um as i mentioned blake blake's diagnosis of milton is quite that he is pro-demon uh that he is anti-tyrant one of the ways yeah one of the ways paradise lost is an anti-tyrant text um william emson's reading goes this way that um the way that paradise lost can imagine a new horizon is that it's God will himself eventually abdicate. Um, There will come a moment where the father who is the great organizing principle of paradise lost will give up his scepter. And it says, God shall be no more. He shall be all in all. Um, And it will be uh, fruitful days, golden days full of fruitful deeds or something like that, or maybe it's the other way around, but, Uh, The point is, it imagines a horizon against which no great organizing principle will be acting. Um, That the center will hollow out in an exciting new way, and we will be the authors of our own futures. Um, It says even Satan will be dissolved back into this sort of... I always think of the moment at the end of Evangelion, like there is kind of a human instrumentality project (laughs) imagined as the end goal of the Miltonic universe. the 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 great terror of the angels is one of the pleasures of the the books of Enoch that um paradise lost lets itself imagine a few times but i don't think they ever get quite to that you know great triangle in the sky moment we get in, in yeah
0: <laughs> yeah i mean it's it's fascinating to me that uh the books of Enoch are a part one part of them and the part that I'm going to cover in this episode and the part that sort of pop culture knows about the book of Enoch in video games, anime Mm. movies, so forth is this story of this sort of pre satanic story of the fallen angels. They reveal all these secrets to mankind and and that's what, that's what initiates the flood. Um, And it's, it's a lot less vague than, than uh, the, 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 uh, the, the canon Bible, which just says, well, man got, they, They were too lost in the sauce so god said look we got to start over this is
1: all fucked um yeah the thing that i think would would compel milton the most if he could read the books of enoch that would compel eve the miltonic eve the most is itself what happens to enoch in them yeah um the way that satan seduces eve in paradise lost is that you will not die instead, you will rise into the heavens and become a goddess, an empress, um a goddess among gods? That is what happens to Enoch in the books of Enoch, he, yeah, he rises to heaven. He becomes the Metatron. He becomes the voice of God. Um, he becomes the me, he becomes the thing that is next to the throne, which is what the sun is mm-hmm. in Paradise Lost, the sort of, agent the voice the agent of the ineffable making itself manifest in the world um that is the spiritual mechanic of paradise lost we are told over and over again by raphael and others uh that it is possible for the crudeness of matt in the same way that i talked about how satan goes further down the chain and becomes more diffuse and becomes more um, locked into place. He is less plastic than the unfallen angels. He is less able to have those angelic gangbangs we were talking about. <laughs> um it is possible that the matter of this world, the the being, the crudeness of the human, will fall away, and in time we will rise in a kind of Gnostic way into the purity of the angels. Uh, and perhaps even that is the horizon we were talking about the human instrumentality project of it all yeah. that we will become the diffuse um, representation of the monist God forever. Right. That, that, the father has descended into time and now we will eventually turn to the gelatinous <laughs> manifestation of and, that entity yeah
0: and th- and that's the part of the you know the other part of the Enoch book um where there's this story about a man who deals with this uh this wrench in the machinery that mm. god has created who uh in order to address that becomes a very important cog in the machinery of, of God and the machinery of heaven. And then the rest of the book after we're sort of done with that, with that narrative is literally just page upon page upon page of people, the people who wrote it, trying to understand the machinery of God, right? It's, it's all of it is about like how the sky works, how agriculture works. And, and that's the book. That's, that's all of it. And I, I find it fascinating to to think about um the 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 narrative of the flesh and the narrative of of the very practical ending with an ascent into the spiritual and all of it coming together as as machinery
1: yeah um yes there there is a way that all the great epics feel a compulsion to diagram the cosmos right Mm -hmm. to to show us the clockwork of existence um it is a very baroque impulse right like the orrery is a very baroque invention right like yeah. what if i showed you how the heavens work um actually the clock is a very baroque <laughs> invention too let me let me develop a mechanism that can measure time uh, clocks proliferate they sort of there's a great moment in um doctor faustus where the chiming of a clock sort of uh a very novel invention is sort of ticking down to his damnation. Um, Walter Benjamin was obsessed with the way the Trauerspiel, the German Baroque plays, fascinated by clocks. There's a moment in Agrippina where it says, there she is, the woman who thought her the clockwork of her mind could turn the mechanism of the universe. Um, the books of Enoch treat that articulation as though it were se- itself kind of a damnable practice right that that even articulating these secrets of how rain forms <laughs> and how and how the stars work is a forbidden knowledge it is a it is a knowledge the fallen angels deliver to us um in a fugitive way right like the gifts of language and the gifts of calendars <laughs> are themselves interdicted and they are kind of the fi- the promethean fire that is stolen from heaven and given to humankind um as a gift but as a ta- as a tainted gift right as a thing we are not supposed to have and are themselves as i'm sure anyone who has ever opened their google calendar knows can often feel like a curse more than any kind of gift <laughs>
0: absolutely yeah <laughs>
1: Yeah, people can follow me on uh, Twitter at uh, Mia Koopa, bad Latin and Super Mario joke, M-E-A-K-O-O-P-A, uh, or AnthonyOlivera.com. Um, my podcast is called The Devil's Party. You can listen to uh, all our episodes about Paradise Lost and its sequel, Paradise Regained, which is about the devil trying to seduce uh, Jesus. Um, the sun now descended into bodily form and into history. Um And now we're working on the Gospels. We finished Mark and we're on John. Uh, And depending on when you're listening to this, I have a graphic novel called Apocrypha, which is uh, stealing the cosmology of Paradise Lost to tell a queer young adult story about queer teens versus the Christian apocalypse. Um, So there's all that. Uh, You message me, whatever, follow me on Twitter, whatever you like.
0: (laughs) Great, thank you. I'm also going to, Going to go and promote the Dumpster Raccoon series, which oh. is how I first became aware of you as a as a big cinephile and 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 fan of your work in that realm.
1: Are you at the Apple this weekend?
0: I I am not. I have oh. to work, but uh, but I wish Speaking I was. Speaking of
1: Christian
0: <laughs> nonsense, <laughs>
1: yeah, <laughs> bad uh, Christian I... art. There's an example of the devil for you in in pop culture, Mister Boogaloo, the uh, executive of BIM records seducing mankind with disco and the power of his holographic bim marks that everyone must wear that's a that's a Satan for you
0: <laughs> perfect. I love it Thank you so much to Anthony for joining me today. Once again you can find Anthony's work at anthonylavira.com. books of Enoch are not considered canon by most sects of Christianity. However, they were at one time wildly popular, in particular among the early disciples and apostles of Jesus of Nazareth. The fantastical events within the early chapters of the books, as well as the many ponderings of the natural world and prophetic visions, captured the imaginations of Jews and early Christians for centuries. Since their rediscovery in Cave 4 of Qumran in the West Bank in 1948, the books have become objects of controversy among religious scholars. They're incredibly unique among biblical texts, particularly the Book of the Watchers, which covers a sort of forgotten era in mankind's history with the God of Abraham before the Flood, in which men, through the rebellion of lustful angels, learn forbidden knowledge and generally make a mess of things here on earth. What follows here is my own recitation of the events of the Book of the Watchers, meant to explicate and entertain, while carving through some of the more dense and incomprehensible notions presented in the text. I want to preface this telling with an admittance that I am not a religious scholar, only a glutton for stories which we human beings tell each other, and so I lay no claim to scholarly or theological value in what follows beyond the purposes of entertainment and curiosity. The Book of the Watchers is part of the sincerely held beliefs of certain people of the Christian faith, but this telling belongs to me, and is my responsibility in the tradition of the oral storyteller, so I hope you'll forgive any embellishments, deviations, or outright flights of fancy that I engage in as I tell it to you. So now, let's begin with an oral history of fallen angels. In the time before history, when human beings exiled from the Garden of Paradise began to scratch the beginnings of civilization from earth and rock, the god of Abraham called a holy man named Enoch the Patriarch to his court. Enoch was the son of Jared, who lived 962 years, and the father of Methuselah, who lived even longer, and was the grandfather of Noah, the boat builder. Enoch is mentioned only once in the book of Genesis, and all that is said is that he was with God. Enoch, in that highest court, was brought to the throne of the Most High, and made to see a vision. A group of God's angels had watched with fascination at the exile of human beings from the Garden of Eden. They watched the children of Adam and Eve carve stone into flesh. They watched Cain kill his brother Abel, watched men lust for flesh and warm blood. They watched fruit grow and rot. They saw men in their beautiful frailty grow make love, create life, then die. Only for their children to repeat this cycle. But in each cycle, with each lifetime, these men would learn something their fathers didn't know. They would learn to build something new, something better. Learn a new way of living on their own and with one another. They formed societies, so that their ideas might live on. But those societies, like themselves, would live, grow, give birth to new societies, and then die. On and on this repeated itself, like a fractal spiraling out forever across the land God had made and kept from them until the garden. A question began to plague one of the angels, a wily, curious being named Samyaza. Would men ever have achieved all this had they not come to defy the All-Father? Could there have ever been the great cities and beautiful agonies of these small, brief lives if the first of them Had not given to temptation? Semyaza pondered this question in his deepest heart, and whispered it to the others, who watched with wonder as flesh entered flesh and created yet more flesh. With each sensation, the Watchers wished more, not simply to watch. They yearned, yearned like mortal men for what mortal men had. Their brief, hapless lives became objects of lust to them, and soon they hatched a covenant among themselves a covenant of self-damnation. They knew then, even as they whispered among themselves, that this would bring their ruin. But the ruin of men came every day with the blow of a club, or the whisper of a plague, or the march of time. The Watchers accepted these things, and made their pact. They would keep to their dark oath on pain of death, and steal away from heaven to the earth. They would defy their wrathful God, make themselves flesh, and eat and drink and make love. They would grow fat, and fill human women with their seed. They would feel writhing earth in their hands, and be as great kings, rich in flesh and stone. They would trade the secrets of heaven for these things, and accept the consequences when they arrived at their feet like the tide. Enoch saw beings of light turn to wretched flesh. The watchers plummeted from the skies, and when they came to earth, their forms were beautiful and horrifying to behold. Two hundred in number descended from the halls of God's kingdom to the earth, and two hundred took the forms of meat and skin and hair. They were tall and beautiful, bathed in fading radiance that betrayed their secret origins. They were as gods to the first men who beheld them, and they ruled great earthly kingdoms in their own names, teaching men things that God had kept from them of the world they inhabited. The Watcher Asael, brought men to the deepest cracks in the mountains and taught them about the treasures god had hidden within them beyond the bats and blind fish beyond the places sunlight could touch there was stone which could be forged into metal he showed them how to make fire so hot it could melt these stones he showed them how to sharpen the stone's edges he taught them how to wield new weapons how to plunge them into the flesh of their enemies when men became powerful in their newfound vanity they cried out to also be beautiful. Beauty is impermanent, a flower which blooms must also wilt, and they begged Asael to show them how to capture beauty away from time. asael thus taught men to dig even deeper, past the bats and the blind fish, past the darkest darknesses and the things that crawled there, past the hard stones which would forge new nations, to find stones that were too soft to kill with, but were glorious to behold. They would bring these soft stones into the sunlight and see how they glimmered, precious treasures that couldn't wilt. Azile taught them to melt these stones and bend the metal into pleasing ornate shapes that would capture beauty in time so that they could keep it and wear it. He taught men to crush stones into dust in mortars and then slather their faces with the dust to beautify them. He taught them to wet the dust and spread it on the rock so they could capture something of creation in time on the walls of the very caves they mined these stones from. The Watcher Penemue was covetous of the secrets of men. He wished to know the things that men knew, the things they kept in their simple minds that made them unafraid of death. He showed men how to press reeds into mulch, and then set the mulch flat on the sun to make paper. He taught them to burn reeds and gather their soot. He showed them how to take that soot to the paper and create symbols each a simple series of line-strokes, each containing a universe of meaning. He taught men these meanings, taught them to speak beyond their voices, to talk through space and time. Of all the weapons Asael had shown men how to forge, none could compare to the blood these symbols would spill. Penamue showed men how to press these symbols into clay, and how to bake the clay into stone, so that their words would live on forever. With this new skill, men created laws to govern themselves and subjugate all others. He deified his words, now rescued from time and age, and declared them the way things must be. Penemu would learn the secrets of men, reading everything they wrote, but what stunned him was not the answers to his questions, but the remarkable ability of these small greedy minds to invent new words, new ideas, and with such rapidity and profundity, that they, like God, created entire worlds within those symbols, and shared them amongst each other. Men had always told stories. That was one of the many quizzical habits that lured Penemu away from God's light. But when he gave them the ability to crystallize those stories, to preserve them with perfect clarity, he grew afraid of the power these little lives were so eager to wield, with a phrase as simple as once upon a time. The Watcher Barakel wept for men's plight on God's earth he marveled at how each season men would hunt and farm, only to succumb to the chaos of the universe at large. He watched them reap much and sow little. And after mortal lifetimes watching these cycles, Barakel learned to predict these things before they happened. He knew when the frost would come and kill fresh crops. He knew where the beast went with early dusk, and why the oceans retreated and attacked the shores of each island. When he came to earth, he set about teaching men how to read the sky. He brought men out into the chill evening air to see the stars above. He showed them their secret meanings, the powerful symbols within them. He showed men how to capture time itself in their mind by simply observing which patterns of stars were where each night. He showed them how to read the clouds to know when rain would come, or to which direction the wind blew. He showed them how to tell when it would rain, or be cold, or hot, and for how long? He taught them how to keep and clean water, in wells so that their food would grow even when the rain was scarce. He taught them how to clean and eat the flesh of animals, what to use their bones and guts for, which things were good to eat, and which ones were poison. Man became the master of his domain. He preserved his crops and flourished in abundance. He prepared for things which had not happened yet, imbued by Barakel with the ability to see forward through time and prepare as if for battle to survive the whims of God's creation. The Watcher King Semyaza taught men sorcery, dark and terrible arts, how to enchant, how to read earth signs, how to cast spells and reach through the plane of the natural world and bend it to their will with secret words. He showed men the secrets God hid from them, the arts that bent fate itself to their will, how to read the books of time, and know what would come. He taught them to make potions from nameless plants that grew in shadow, to make friends of wild beasts, and strike bargains with beings so profane even Samyaza feared them. He taught men to keep secrets, taught them the power of what is known and unknown. He taught men to lie, to half-truth, and to expose as the blade flashes in the sun before it strikes. He taught them to twist their tongues into secret shapes, And make secret words, one of which was the secret name of God Himself, which men believed gave them power over God. For these four, eradication would not be enough, their punishment would be everlasting. God watched the Watchers teach humanity things He had never intended them to know how to make war, how to deceive, how to read and command the cosmos as He does. He watched them worshipped as gods themselves for their ill given gifts. The women of earth were beautiful to the watchers and they pressed their flesh into the flesh of human women and in this way committed their gravest crime in god's eyes the creation of new life from the loins of these human women who joined with the watchers sprung children the children of the watchers were called nephilim their existence like their story is fraught with contradictions some accounts describe them as giants hundreds of feet tall, and horrible to behold, blood-drinkers and flesh-eaters. They turned on their predecessors and consumed the flesh of men. Other accounts describe them as heroes, beautiful and supernaturally strong, supermen who became legends such as Hercules and even Gilgamesh, as mortal as they were immortal, as destructive as they were revered, as bloodthirsty as they were benevolent. Go out, said God, the Lord of Hosts to Enoch.
2: I name you Metatron, my voice. I name you Messiah, my will. I cast you to the watchers. Tell them of my coming, of my wrath. Make them know the sum of my displeasure. And so,
0: Enoch went to the watchers. Enoch descended from the High Court of Heaven, he beheld the work of archangels, loyal still to God. He saw a great mountain of black rock, where nothing lived or grew, and no snow fell. From its summit he could see a lake of churning fire, like a furnace as angels dipped their blades into its waters and bathed them in everlasting fire. He saw them building a prison at its base, a narrow crevice which no light could penetrate dark and hollow and forever. He knew when he saw these things that the angels were preparing for war. He knew that when God outstretched his hand and pointed his finger at the new kingdoms of men, they would be drowned in the abyss of his wrath and forgotten forever. When Enoch came to the court of Semyaza, it was in the rags of a beggar. He limped up the great stone steps, each bearing the witch-king's name. His time away from earth had made him forget the burden of chill and weight. From the highest step he saw the vast city, which stretched beyond the horizon, spires of gold and iron thrust into the sky, licked by black smoke. He could hear the screaming of those who must suffer for the good of industry, smelled their blood and urine mixed at the feet of great giants adorned in gold, the princes of Semyaza, their forms almost as tall as the Black Mountain, each looming over great armies of men clad in bronze armor, each prostrate before the princes of the Watchers, the Nephilim. Metatron, said Semyaza. Welcome to my court. Enoch straightened his back and beheld the leader of the Watchers, taller than any man but only just, bathed in a fading light like embers of a doused fire, eyes glimmering yellow gold, and skin like pure copper. I am here to speak for Almighty God, whom you have forsaken, O King," said Enoch. I know it, said Semyaza, outstretching his hand and turning to invite Enoch into his chamber. Come, sit, eat with me. The others will be along soon. Enoch made his way to a lavish table overflowing with fruit and cooked animal flesh and wine. He was told to eat his fill and tell the servants if he wanted anything he didn't see on the table. Enoch touched nothing. He sat rigidly in his seat at the head of the table, and watched as one by one, each of the other three watcher-kings arrived, led by servants of their nation, armed with weapons Enoch could barely comprehend the danger of. When Azael, Penemu, and Barakael had all arrived and taken their places at the table, they betrayed the august air of their composure and dress. By grabbing fistfuls of food and biting into them with ravenous, gaping chomps. They made horrid squelching noises as they feasted, moaning and sucking in air between each mouthful, coating their faces, hands, and chests and whatever slipped down their chins. By the time Semyaza had finished ushering the servants away and closing the chamber doors, only a single olive branch remained on the table, which Enoch picked up between his thumb and forefinger and stroked thoughtfully. Semyaza took his seat at the other end of the feasting table, And all of the Watcher Kings turned to Enoch with expectant expressions. It must be clear, right here and now, said Enoch, that I am not here to negotiate the terms of a war with you. I am simply a messenger of His will, and His will be done. At this, the Watchers were silent. They knew what was to come, knew there was no running from it. For some time, Enoch pressed the leaves of the olive branch between his fingers, admiring its smooth texture until Semyaza spoke. Can I ask you something, Metatron? Enoch looked up from his hands and met the eyes of the Witch King. He placed the olive branch on the table and leaned forward. You may. Did you ask for this? For what? Did you ask to be God's mediator in this affair? No, said Enoch. It was a task given to me by the Most High. And, well, as I said, King of the Watchers, his will be done. Is this what you wanted? To behold the sum of our great sin before he washes it away? Enoch blinked thoughtfully, was silent for a moment, then said, What I want doesn't matter. Just as yours doesn't matter. Betrayer. Blasphemer. Witch-king. I am what you say. I and my brothers have defied him, and we accept what punishment will come, because we have always known of its coming. The moment we whispered our first secret to your kind, we knew it would come. Only only? Only. I still can't understand how it all happened. Enoch was puzzled. He had gotten the impression that this mission of his would be simple. He would come to the great city of the Witch King, he would tell the watchers that their fate was sealed, and he would leave. But here he was suddenly expecting to be bargained with somehow. Truly, he thought, the ability of these rebels to lure mortal men away from God's grace was astounding. He wanted to slam his hand on the table, to stand and declare all that his prophecy would bear, the storm, the flood, the pit, the end and the new beginning, with all their names and secrets drowned at the bottom of a never-ending sea. And yet, how what happened? asked Enoch to his own surprise. How? said Semyaza. We came to stray so far from his will. It's almost as if, as if it too, was his will. At this, Enoch did stand from his seat. His voice boomed and shook the stones of the chamber. You dare twist your
2: vile tongue to implicate the Lord of Hosts in your rebellion against him?
0: The Watchers cowered from the Metatron, tucking their crowned heads under their hands and squeezing their ears shut with their palms, all except for Semyaza, who was shaken but stood with Enoch as if to challenge him. "'I am simply wondering,' said Semyaza in a quavering voice, "'why God, in his absolute power, would make servants that would defy him.'" Enoch moved to speak again, but found new strange thoughts clouding his mind he sat back down, and Semyaza continued. God made the whole universe. Is the whole universe. And with each thing in its place, a great and infinite machine clicks away, called time. I know something of time, Metatron. Time is young. I was there when it began. When the first point of light pierced the void, I saw it. When the first living being emerged from the furnace of creation. I watched. I saw the garden grow. I saw your forefather live in its abundance, and in all that time I wondered, why? Why would the Creator place a tree in the garden from which his noblest creation couldn't eat? What part in the machinery of all of this did this game play? I thought at first that these thoughts were blasphemous, as you do. I feared the question far more than the answer, because, of course, I feared God. The other Watcher Kings had risen from under their hands, each listening with a knowing melancholy, as Semyaza spoke. But when we watched men defy his will, watched them leave the garden, kill each other, breed with each other, be cruel to each other, the question grew like a sickness within us. What was a question became a secret. And what was a secret became a whisper, and what was a whisper became a pact. The question, said Semyaza, occurred to me then as it occurs to you now. Enoch darted his eyes down, staring at the olive branch on the table, clutching his beard tightly. That either God meant for all this to happen, or God is imperfect. There was no sound for some time in that chamber. You are his voice, Enoch the Patriarch. Through you he speaks. So tell us the answer. Enoch was silent and still, then rose from his seat and held up the olive branch, staring at the intricate lattices that held each leaf together, the beautiful and immaculate machinery of nature. The angels are coming, betrayers, said Enoch flatly. They come to cleanse the world in water. Wash all of this away. The Watchers looked to each other, then to Enoch. They come for you, all two hundred of you, but most of all, you four, witch kings, secret tellers, oath breakers, pact holders. You four and the blasphemous nations you've built on God's creation will receive special attention. So God intends to wipe humanity from his creation altogether? asked Barakel who loved humanity more than any of the Watchers? No, said Enoch. Noah the Patriarch will be visited by the angel Uriel and receive the same vision of what is to come that I have. He will be instructed to build an ark, and when God's judgment comes, the ark will be spared from it. So, man will live on, muttered Azael, touching his chin. To begin again without us. men said Enoch, are corrupt, but ultimately blameless in this. It was you who showed them things they were never meant to know. You who plunged them into the sins of industry, and vanity, and politic. God is merciful. He will wash the corruption from man, but man will not be destroyed. What of our children, Metatron? asked Penemu. What of the Nephilim? The monuments to your betrayal will be swept away with the storm, said Enoch flatly. But why? What have they done? asked Azael. It doesn't matter what they've done, said Enoch, his voice rising, making the wall shudder again. Their
2: very existence is blasphemy. You allowed desire to creep into your minds. You allowed lust to fill your hearts. You took mortal women and filled them with your seed." You mingle your blood with the blood of man, and they are the manifestation of your betrayal for the very nature of your being. The monsters, the heroes, and all the giants, they will war with men as they have for many years now. Their nations will meet against each other as waves, but in the presence of God, they will break, as water on a rock.
0: The Watcher Kings all fell silent. For they knew that there was nothing left to say, except for Samyaza, who spoke in a whisper as he had when the Pact of the Watchers was made. Then you, son of man, have completed your role in all of this. You are Metatron and Messiah both, his voice and his will, and his will be done, always. Enoch left the chamber and thought of these words. His will be done, always. The voice of God spoke the truth. His will crashed over the nations of the Watchers in a great flood. The Archangel Uriel went to Noah and bid him build an ark, and he built it. He collected two of each living thing not damned by God's will and stowed each on the ark as the rains fell. The Archangel Raphael saw the great wars that men and giants waged, slaughtering millions under the gathering storm clouds. When the last drop of blood was washed into the earth, Raphael went to Azael, and took him as a mother takes a babe, and carried the Watcher of War into the abyss beneath the great mountain, and closed the mouth of it forever. The Archangel Gabriel, having dipped his sword in the lake of fire on the Black Mountain, watched the rain put the lake out and turn it to solid rock. Its bubbling stopped, and the mountain top grew tall enough to pierce the surface of the ocean which would cover the world. Gabriel's sword still aflame, he smote the Nephilim with one swing of his fire. Their flesh burned to bone, their bones burned to dust, and their dust washed away in the rain. The archangel Michael came to the court of Semyaza in the robes of a beggar. Michael made his way up the stone steps, which crumbled like mud. He looked out and saw the demolished spires of gold and iron laid on empty courtyards in a barren city, filling slowly with rainwater disappearing under the muck. Michael, said Semyaza. Michael didn't speak. He lifted the hood of his robe and met the Watcher King's eyes. Ah, said Semyaza. Of course. Enoch stood under Semyaza's body, as it hung from chains that glittered against the flames of the deepest layer of hell. "'You've come to oversee my everlasting punishment, Metatron?' whispered Semyaza. Behind Semyaza, hung like stars in the night sky, the two hundred watchers, each slung from chains above everlasting hellfire, each silent in their punishment, for each knew always that this was their fate. The flesh they traded for heaven, blistering and dripping forever from their bones. My work is done. I go now to be with the Most High. Just a visit then, said Semyaza, with a choking laugh. If he speaks through you, then you are him, Metatron. If you do his will, then you are him, Messiah. So to you, and to him, I bid farewell. And I wonder, as I did when I was with him, if he always knew it would come to this. If this cruelty was by design or by accident, I suppose it doesn't matter. I suppose I'll have all eternity to linger here and wonder. Go then, Metatron, Messiah, Son of Man, Patriarch. Go and be with him while I wonder. After 30 days and 30 nights, The rain stopped, and the ark drifted for many more days. Noah, looking for some sign of God's forbearance, sent out two doves, and when one returned from the tip of a mountain to tell Noah that the flood was over, and that man had been granted a second chance, in its mouth was an olive branch. The End If you'd like to support the show, you can find us on patreon.com breakfastwithgilgamesh breakfast with Gilgamesh. And if you'd like to read fiction by your humble host and author, accompanied by the incredible work of talented artists, you can find it at zkleverton.com. A special thanks to Anthony Oliveira, whose work you can find at anthonyoliveira.com, Sam Beck, who designed my beautiful logo, Thomas Holden, who composed the wonderful music you heard throughout, and to all the friends and partners who made this project possible with their time and insight. Next episode, A Few Nights with Shahrazad. Join us then for more Breakfast with Gilgamesh.